Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, Ken Ham is here to discuss the one and only true way to end racism. And Greg Patton is living in today's world. This month marks 89 years of bringing clarity to the chaos and reminding everyone that God is still on the throne and prayer changes things. Thank you to everyone who has been faithfully supporting Watchmen on the Wall and Southwest Radio Ministries with your prayers and financial gifts over the years. If you're a new listener to Watchmen on the Wall and would like to know more about us, check out our website, swrc.com, and request a new listener pack. This free resource contains a welcome letter about the ministry, the latest issue of the Prophetic Observer, our monthly newsletter, and a free gift. Request your free new listener pack by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall. We're glad you're here. It's a rarely discussed fact of history that the premise of Darwinian evolution has been deeply rooted in the worst racist ideology since its inception. Read a thorough account of the effects of evolution on the history of the United States and discrimination based on ethnicity, including slavery and the civil rights movement. The tragic legacy of Darwin's controversial speculations on evolution has led to terrible consequences taken to the deadliest extremes. Ken Ham is here to reveal the origins of these horrors, as well as the proof revealed in Scripture that God created only one race. There is a concerted attack to discredit the Bible. The enemy knows that if he can cast a shadow of doubt on the Bible regarding its reliability, he has made a tremendous advance in his cause. With me today is Ken Ham, who is the founder of Answers in Genesis. Ken, it's a great privilege to have you with us. Well, thanks, Larry. It's always great to talk on this topic that's so dear to my heart. You do not like the term race, and I don't like the term either, but you say there's one race, and that is the human race. I certainly agree. You would much rather use the term people groups, and you say that Scripture distinguishes people by tribal or national groupings, not by skin color or physical appearances. Isn't it correct to say that science supports this since the DNA differences between the different groups are really insignificant? Oh, absolutely. In fact, it's interesting. You've heard of the Human Genome Project. Yes. And the Human Genome Project, you know, they've been mapping the human genes and so on. And one of the scientists came out recently and he said, now that they have been able to map the human genome, and by the way, I don't think they've really mapped it all, but they've certainly mapped a lot of it. He said, we've come to a startling conclusion. There is only one race, the human race. (laughs) And I thought, oh, wow. (laughs) If only they'd have read the Bible, they would have known this ahead of time anyway. And then the other thing they said was, what they found is that the differences in our physical appearance that are used to distinguish the so-called races, such as skin color and eye shape and so on, really constitute almost an insignificant genetic difference. In other words, basically what they say is the difference between any two people genetically is about 0.2%. So the difference between you and me, Larry, and our genes is about 0.2%. But what constitutes the so-called racial differences like skin color constitute only 6% of that, which is 0.01%, which means 
it's extremely minor. And they go on to say the major differences are actually cultural, not genetic, they're cultural. And they make an interesting comment because they say, really, we have been programmed to recognize certain external features as major differences when they're actually not. And, and I believe in this country that relates particularly to skin color, where a lot of people look and say, oh, there's a black person and there's a white person and look how different they are. Actually, there are no white people or no black people, Larry. <laughs> we all have the same skin color. Mm -hmm. And we can have a lot of it and be very dark brown and a little bit of it and be light. Mm -hmm. But those differences are actually incredibly minor when you understand them genetically. And I think that you know, what we've got to do is wake up to the fact that the teaching of evolution has influenced us. In fact, we've been taught to think in terms of you know, some races are superior to others and others are inferior, because that's what evolution teaches. Evolution teaches that certain groups of people evolved at certain times and some are superior to others. The Bible teaches we all go back to one man, Adam. We're all of one race. And in fact, I remember a sort of a humorous thing here, but after speaking on this topic at a particular seminar, one man came to me and he said, oh, when I got my census form and it said, what race are you? He said, I decided to put down Adams. <laughs> Good response. But you're right. I think Darwinism, evolutionism, has left such an ugly blot on the minds and souls of people. You know, it's very interesting. We often hear that the Apostle Paul was a male chauvinist, and that's a statement or charge that is often made by Darwinists. But Darwin believed and taught that women are inferior to men. We could get into that issue as well. For example, I was reading somewhere that on the scale of evolution, males are allegedly more advanced than women because in battle, the weaker men were killed off and only the strongest, smartest, and most agile remained. But allegedly, the women stayed at home in the hut and were generally weaker and inferior. So certainly, evolutionism has put a big wedge between male and female, between the different people groups, and yet people say, well, we're liberated, we need to believe in evolution. That's folly. It is. It's so hypocritical and inconsistent. And, you know, if you really take Paul's writings in the Scripture, it actually tells a man to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. In fact, husbands are told they have to be prepared to die for their wives. So that's very different to what evolution teaches, which is basically survival of the fittest and and whoever survives, they're the better ones and they're the superior ones. And so there's no love for those who die out. They're the weakest. So mm -hmm. it's, it's totally opposite when you think about it. It's interesting how some people try to appeal to Scripture to support racism. They claim, for example, that the scattering of the people at the Tower of Babel shows that God intended people to be separate. But, of course, the scattering was along linguistic lines, not on the basis of skin color. I've never been able to find find any mention of skin color in Genesis 11 or any place else. You're right, and, and not only that, when you look at, say, Acts chapter 17, 26, where it says, God made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth and determine the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, he's talking about the fact that God is in charge of nations, just as, you know, God raised up the Assyrians to judge the Jews, and then he judged the Assyrians, and then he raised up the Babylonians and judged the Babylonians, you know, and so on. He's in charge of those nations, but none of that has anything to do with, you know, who should marry who and all the rest of it. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear that people who love God, love the true God, are free to marry others who love the true God, no matter what nations they're from. If you look at the example of Rahab, Rahab, who was in the city of Jericho, presumably she was a Canaanite, 
and a descendant of Ham, interestingly, she is in the line leading to Jesus Christ. She married an Israelite, a descendant of Shem. And the reason that they could mix is because she stopped being a Canaanite spiritually and became an Israelite spiritually. So you see, when it's talking about God scattering the nations and so on, it's nothing to do with, you know, forbidding marriage or anything like that. It's to do with God's in charge of nations. And so it's not to do with, you know, separating out races that shouldn't mix back together and, and all the rest of it. The Bible certainly needs to be taken as written to show the fact that there's only one race of people, one race biologically, but actually what the Bible's message is all about is that there are two races spiritually. Mm-hmm. And the difference between those two races is the direction in which they are racing those that are on the narrow road and those that are on the broad road. That's really what the Bible's talking about in regard to races. Right, either we're in Adam or we're in Christ. Exactly. And those are the distinctions. As you were speaking, I was thinking of the fact that the Bible tells us that the purpose of marriage is to produce a godly seed or a godly offspring, but it never says that the purpose of marriage is to produce a so-called pure race. I haven't found that in Scripture either. <laughs> no, you won't find it. And you're right, like even in Malachi 2.15, where the prophet asked the question, why did God make two one, with a reference you know, back to Adam and Eve, back to marriage? And the answer is because he sought godly seed from your offspring. That's the emphasis of the scripture concerning the family, which is the first and most fundamental of all human institutions which God created. And that is the family is the educational unit of the nation to produce godly offspring who will influence the world for Christ, who will produce godly offspring who will influence the world for Jesus Christ. has nothing to do with skin color, eye shape, physical appearances or anything like that at all. I think that this issue is related to ultimately the young earth and recent creation. Now, of course, there are a few who argue differently. I know that there is a major evangelical ministry that uh, I believe does a lot of good work, but it makes this issue to be a merely peripheral one. It says it doesn't matter if you believe in a young earth or an old earth. Ken, why is it absolutely imperative that we accept what Scripture says about the young earth and the young universe? Well, let me put it to you this way, Larry. Why do we as Christians believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ? Now, if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul actually says, that Jesus Christ rose on the third day, and then how do we finish the rest of that sentence? According to the Scripture. Scriptures. Right. Exactly. In fact, twice you read that there in the same passage. And he rose according to the Scriptures. You see, I didn't see Jesus rise from the dead. You didn't see Jesus rise from the dead. We weren't there. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence consistent with that. But nonetheless, we can't prove it. Ultimately, the reason we believe it is because of the Scriptures, because of the words of Scripture that we take as written. And as Paul says, if Christ be not raised from the dead, our faith is in vain. Then what's this got to do with the young earth and so on? Well, it's got a lot to do with it. Why do I believe that God created in six literal days just thousands of years ago? My answer, because I take the Bible in Genesis as a historical narrative, which it is, exactly the same way I take the Bible in 1 Corinthians 15 as written, according to the language, according to the type of literature, according to the words in context. You see, when you read Genesis 1, you can come to no other conclusion from the Hebrew language that God created in six days. And actually, I've got quote after quote after quote from theologians who admit, yes, the words of Scripture in Genesis 1 mean six ordinary days, and then they go on to say, but, and the big but is they can't mean six ordinary days. Why? Because of the billions of years. Well, if you can't take the words of Scripture as written as to what they mean, 
and you have to reinterpret them on the basis of ideas from outside of the Bible, then why not do the same in the New Testament? Because mm-hmm. science has never shown a resurrection from the dead, so maybe the bodily resurrection is just a spiritual resurrection. Maybe we should reinterpret the virgin birth because mm-hmm. we didn't see a virgin birth. You see, the whole issue, Larry, is tied up with the authority of Scripture. It's not yes. an argument about the age of the earth. It's an argument about authority of Scripture. And if God's word in Genesis means six days, and once you accept those days as ordinary days, you can't find millions of years in the Bible because you've got all those genealogies, those begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, you know, right from Adam all the way down, and you only get thousands of years when you add up those dates. And so, really, why do I believe in a young earth? I believe in a young earth because of the words of Scripture that must be taken as written. And you see, the other issue is, as soon as you believe in millions of years or billions of years anyway, then you've got death and disease and violence and thorns and bloodshed before sin. Mm -hmm. Because as soon as you believe in millions of years, the millions of years applies to the fossil record. Supposedly, the fossil record was laid down over millions of years before man. But if you believe that as a Christian, like many Christian leaders sadly do, then you've got death and disease and violence and thorns before sin. There are dinosaur bones in the fossil record that show evidence of cancer. Are we going to say at the end of the sixth day of creation, God said everything was very good and the world was full of cancer? The Bible says thorns came after the curse. But there are thorns in the fossil record supposedly hundreds of millions of years old. And if you've got death and bloodshed before sin, then why did Jesus die on a cross? Because if death was not the penalty for sin and death existed before sin, then why did Jesus shed his blood on the cross? Why did the Israelites sacrifice animals over and over again because of sin? So you see, it's an imperative that we believe what the Bible teaches concerning the days of creation, which then impinge on the age of the earth. You know, Ken, there is an evangelical, he's a progressive creationist. He maintains, I believe, that about two to four million years ago, God began creating man-like mammals, or hominids, I think is, is what he calls them. And supposedly these creatures resemble human beings, but they had no spirit and they had no conscience. Moreover, he says they did not worship God. Now, according to this individual, some 10 to 25,000 years ago, God replaced these hominids with Adam and Eve. And so if you date the Australian Aborigines and Native Americans or American Indians around 40 to 60,000 years ago, then you must conclude that they were hominids without souls and without spirits. And I think that's a pretty radical conclusion, and yet that comes from a so-called evangelical author. Well, you know, one of the sad things is when you believe in the millions of years and you believe those dating methods work, then you have a problem because there are human skeletons that are dated by these dating methods going back to almost two million years. So what do you do with them? And that's why people like this particular author put them before Adam and say they were a race of soulless hominids and so on, and then God created Adam and Eve. You know what's interesting? Just recently, we found out that that particular person has changed the date of Adam and Eve now. He pushes Adam and Eve back almost 60,000 years. Mm. And the reason I would say that he does is because we came out and said, listen, if you're going to have these Adam and Eve back 10 to 25,000 years and these soulless hominids before then, the American Indians and the Australian Aborigines by the same dating methods go back beyond 60,000 years, so they're not descendants of Adam. Mm. And I think that that person has realized that's causing a big problem. And so they pushed the dates back 60,000 years. But you know what? I don't think it'll be long before the secular world pushes the dates of the American Indians and Australian Aborigines back. In fact, some are now trying to push the Aborigines back 100,000 years. 
so this author's going to have to push his dates back again. And you see, when you add up all the dates in the Bible, you can't get even 25,000 years for Adam and Eve. In fact, you don't even get 10,000 years for Adam and Eve. In fact, you only get about 6,000 years. But it shows you what you have to do when you believe that those fallible dating methods based on fallible assumptions by fallible human beings when you accept them as absolute, then you've got to do all sorts of contortions mm -hmm. to try to fit these ideas into the Bible. I know there are some racists who, unfortunately, appeal to the Word of God. Now, of course, they're definitely not literal creationists, and they hold to some form of the gap theory. They want to speak of a pre-Adamic group of people, and so they try to distinguish the so-called pre-Adamic group of people from Adam and Eve, and then this allows them to say that non-whites are not the descendants of Adam. And I think just by looking at the Internet, this is becoming an increasingly popular view. What would be a good short response to those who are arguing allegedly from the Bible in this manner? First of all, a number of passages, you know, Acts 17, verse 26, God made of one blood. In fact, the original there in the Greek says that we all go back to one man. 1 Corinthians 15:45 says Adam was the first man. Genesis chapter 3 verse 20 says Eve was to be the mother of all the living, not some of the living, but all the living. And the Bible makes it very very clear that all people are descendants of one man and one woman. And you see, Larry, if that's not true, we have a major problem with the gospel because when you think about it, Jesus Christ became a descendant of Adam and he became one of us of our blood. So he died for the descendants of Adam. He became the God man. Now, if anyone's of another race and not of the Adamic race, then they can't be saved. Uh -huh. Only people who are of the Adamic race can be saved. And yet the Bible tells us to go out and preach the gospel to every tribe uh -huh. and nation. Why? Because every tribe and nation goes back to Noah and back to Adam because we're all of one blood, because we're all descendants of one man, we're all descendants of one woman. That's imperative to understanding the gospel and understanding the Great Commission. And so it's very, very obvious from Scripture that those people certainly cannot back up their arguments. In fact, you will find with those particular people, you ask them, where in the Bible it talks about a pre-Adamic race? Where in the Bible can you justify this from? They can't. They will appeal to secular dating methods mm -hmm. and so on to try to justify their ideas, but they certainly cannot get that from Scripture. Ken Ham will continue his look at the Bible's answer to racism next time. Ken Ham's book and DVD entitled One Blood, One Race is our featured resource today. In One Race, One Blood, you'll discover the origins of people groups, the genetics of skin color, and what the Bible says about interracial marriage. Eye-opening discussion on racism and its roots in the hearts and minds of millions still today will be found in One Race, One Blood. Order One Race, One Blood book and DVD when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. They are examples for us, men and women who serve despite great hardships and physical difficulties. How to make it work in this old world. Greg Patton, and Living in Today's World. I love to read about great men and women of God. How about you? All a part of really living in today's world. I think the year was 1854. One of my favorites 
Do you know much about Charles Haddon Spurgeon? Courage in Colossal Times. The city of London, not long before, a 20-year-old named Charles H. Spurgeon had been called upon to pastor a church in the city, 20 years old. But since he had taken over, so had a major outbreak of cholera. The acute infectious disease of the small intestine had hit an epidemic proportions. We did so well here at our church in Fort Wayne with the pandemic, and yet, my goodness, sooner or later, everyone got sick. They were just so ill. If you've had it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You really don't want to do anything. And though the death rate there was soaring in London, and the risk of infections were very great, a young Spurgeon deemed it his duty as a minister, as the pastor to the sick and the bereaved, to conduct funerals daily. He did, and he tended to all of those people in need. Family after family called on Spurgeon. He went to the bedside of those that were so sick, and he wrote later, and I quote, I became weary in body and sick at heart. My friends seemed to be falling one by one, and I felt like I was sickening like those around me. You know, on his way home from one funeral, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was lifted by the Word of God. He saw this posted in a shoemaker's window. You will not be afraid of the terror by night, or the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, or the destruction that lay wait at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come to you. Psalm 91, that is a favorite of so many Christians, and if you haven't read it, you need to and claim it as your own in a time of trouble. I just read Psalm 91, 5, 6, and 7. So many people sick and oftentimes ends in death. I've been at the bedside so many times with people drawing that last breath. I remember being in Detroit, Michigan with Pastor Larry Bartlett of Prayer Baptist Church, going to the hospital of one of the men who was the founder of that church, head deacon of that church, suffering from spinal cancer. Despite the pain medication, he just moaned and groaned. And I remember seeing Pastor Bartlett just throw his body on top of this man standing there by his bedside and crying out to God with the big question so many Christians ask, why, Lord, why must this man, your child, suffer this way? Spurgeon, he was strengthened. He was refreshed by that passage of the 91st Psalm, and he pressed on to visit the dying in a very calm and peaceful spirit. I continue to remind people in these troubling times that you and I live that God is in control, and you must understand that. Although, again, around the world, politically here in the United States, all the things that are going on, the liberal church phase in America today, we seem to be in that Laodicean phase. Do not get weary in well-doing, my friend. I'll say again, and you need to hear it and understand it. God is in control. So over there in London, as the years went by, Charles Haddon Spurgeon struggled terribly with so many ailments of his own, including deep states of depression. Now, that's interesting. And he had rheumatic gout, which eventually took his life in 1891 at the age of 56. Unbelievable. I mean, when I read his books and all the things that he did from his ministry to his college to how could he get all of that done 
in 56 years, having again so many problems. In one sermon, he uttered this, My spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child, and I knew not what I wept for. I guess the question might be today, have you ever been there like that? I know I have, but usually I know what I'm weeping for, but it just is overwhelming. So many things coming at him, and I'll say again, in our household, I have felt like this recently, coming every direction, barely a moment for myself, and maybe you are there now, or you have been, or you are going to be there. My spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child. God's great man, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And then I knew not, he said, what I wept for. Through it all, Charles Haddon Spurgeon contended for the faith, becoming well-known for his emotionally powerful messages. You had to get a ticket to get in to hear him preach. There was no charge, but there was no room. So many people wanted to hear Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He had the very keen ability to be able to relate to everyone. I would go to the deeps a hundred times to cheer a downcast spirit, said Spurgeon. It is good for me to have been afflicted that I might know how to speak a word in season to one that is weary. And that's part of our problem today. We don't mind talking about the word. We don't mind proclaiming the word. We just don't want things to happen to us in any negative way. And I continue to say, I don't think you're going to be used very much for God until you have been through the dark valleys of life. And your whole life is one of ups and downs. Maybe you're up today. Tomorrow you'll be down. That, too, is life, my friend. Love, solid teaching from the Word of God. That was the message repeated again and again by Charles Haddon Spurgeon in London, England. What a man of God. I would encourage you today, my friend, to again look to the author and the finisher of your faith because he is in control regardless of the situation you're in. And I realize there are hundreds of things we could be talking about right now reference to you and your situation. But the answer is always the same. The answer is Jesus Christ. Now, what is the question? The Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I want to conclude by asking you that question. Have you been there? Have you done that? Have you asked God to forgive you of your sins? And have you invited Jesus Christ into your life to rule and reign? I pray that you have and that you are living an obedient life, one that Jesus Christ would be able to say someday, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Don't forget the 91st Psalm. It's great. This is the day the Lord hath made, and we are to rejoice and be glad in it. How much rejoicing have you done today? Boy, oh boy, there are just so many stories living in today's world, and this has been but one. Ken Ham's book and DVD entitled One Race, One Blood are available when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144, or order online swrc.com Tomorrow Ken Ham returns and we honor our ministry elders as anniversary month continues 
Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by subscribing to our daily Watchman on the Wall podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and has been supported for 89 years by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com. That's swrc.com. Thank you.